you say mic check? Mic check. 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 You're listening to Mic Check, a podcast featuring conversations with young women, intersex, queer, and trans folks of color about what it's really like on the front lines and back lines of the fight for gender justice and how listeners can best support grassroots movements. Artist's duty, as far as I'm concerned, is to reflect the times. For over 20 years, Third Wave has funded youth-led activism and organizing across the United States, and has supported emerging organizations that lack access to philanthropy. We believe that young women, intersex, queer, and trans youth of color are vital to all movements for justice. I think that is true of, of, of painters, sculptors, poets, musicians. Third Wave Fund exists because the precise communities who experience the bulk of oppression still exist at the margins of philanthropy. To me, it's my duty. All right. All right, everybody ready? (laughs) (laughs) I'm Monica Trinidad. And I'm Tara Tabassi, and we're so excited that you're listening to our podcast. In this inaugural episode, we chat with L.A.-based organizer Jessica Gonzalez of Immigrant Youth Coalition and Chicago-based organizer Hannah Batiste of Asada's Daughters. Both organizations receive multi-year support through Third Wave's Grow Power Fund and have also been grantees of the Mobilize Power Fund for urgent activists and organizing needs in their communities. My name is Hannah Batiste. I am a D.C., born and raised, uh, first-generation person whose parents are from Trinidad, and that's very close to my heart. Um, I'm a queer person who grew up in queer radical theater nerd community and that's also very that's like part of my political home um i organize with the sawdust daughters and i also build software that helps people manage wind farms um and i just am a person of many contradictions and that's how i prefer to live my life Asada's Daughters is an intergenerational collective of radical black girls, women, and gender nonconforming people located in Chicago's Washington Park neighborhood. Their organization provides young people with political education and leadership development that is necessary for them to achieve the things they want to see in their community. So I'm Jessica Gonzalez. I'm queer, illegal as fuck, femme. Um, Yeah, I was born in Mexico. Tijuana, but like my family has been migrating all over the place. Grew up in the Inland Empire in like this little city, um, but lived in San Diego somewhere in high school up until like two years ago. So now I'm in Los Angeles and so constantly um, migrating. I have a puppy who I love very much. So um, my it's National Puppy Day. So if we want to talk about puppies, we can talk about puppies later. Um, I love animals. Uh, I also organized with the Immigrant Youth Coalition, and I started organizing since I was 17. Um, and it's been such a big part of who I am and my close family as well. Immigrant Youth Coalition is an undocumented and queer and trans youth-led organization based in California. Their mission is to mobilize youth, families, and incarcerated people to end the criminalization of immigrants and people of color. From rapid response, deportation defense work, packing the courts, and youth organizing leadership programs, Immigrant Youth Coalition pushes for the voices of those most directly impacted to be at the forefront of our movements. I guess we should introduce ourselves, right? 
Yes, definitely. So my name is Monica Trinidad, and I'm a queer Latinx artist and organizer based in Chicago, and I'm also the communications officer for Third Way Fund. Um, so in Chicago, I'm part of this collective called For the People Artist Collective, and there's about 17 of us, uh, all black artists and artists of color, and we work to make the radical power of art accessible to organizations and efforts in our city. Um, the philanthropy world is super new to me, even with over 10 years of community organizing experience, but I'm really excited that I get to enter this world with Third Wave Fund. My name is Tara Tabassi. I'm a queer Iranian-American activist living in New York City. I'm an anti-militarist organizer at the War Resisters League. And besides tearing down the arms trade, I like to build up community gardens, plant-based healing, and telling stories through illustration. I also really love when activists have spaces to talk through our visions for collective liberation. So big love and gratitude to my co-host Monica for dreaming up this podcast. Hey, Monica, you want to hear a joke? Sure, why not? What did one shepherd say to the other during a lightning storm? I don't know. Let's get the flock out of here. <laughs> so let's jump in, y'all. Jessica and then Hannah. What's a day in the life of an immigrant youth coalitioner and a day in the life of an Asada's daughter? Yeah, I think that uh, it's ever-evolving. I think that for a long time we were doing a lot of um, reactionary work or having to do a lot of reactionary uh, mobilizing, organizing, oh shit, somebody from our family has been taking, somebody from our community has been taking. Um, how do you do this work, right? Because a lot of the times um, IYC has created these models that haven't been replicated in a lot of different places or like we're usually the ones to get called on in terms of doing deportation defense. And so then that has really uh, made a shift into like doing a lot of reactionary work to now um, the average day looks like organizing um, a lot of like internal spaces, a lot of um, more so rebuilding who we are, but that doesn't mean that like we don't have to do reactionary work yesterday the past two days, I went on a 24-hour trip to Las Vegas to do a court support. And so then it's still, like, on the clock. And uh, it's it's work that I hold close to my heart, so it's not that. <laughs> right? But, yeah. Yeah, I would, I would say, like, similarly, the, the work the work looks different for different members of Asada's Daughters since we um, – and it has evolved over time. When we started, we were sort of like a group – a collective of, of many black women and, and children. Um, and it looked like spending days organizing actions, um, developing curriculum, um, bringing other people together for dinner before programming, um, taking them on field trips, uh, visiting other radical Chicago organizations um, so that they could get exposure to like what our, commu our, our, our communities that we're in solidarity with are doing um, and growing our programs to... Um, working with five-year-olds, six-year-olds, eight-year-olds, and then working with teenagers. Um, that was sort of in our beginning. And now, like, day-to-day -day looks like um, creating a space, like an actual physical space where young people can come in and drop in whenever they want and get access to resources, um, being more specifically embedded in our Washington Park community. Um, and, uh, yeah, just providing more of a space for folks to, to kind of be in community with each other, but also um, be brought up in a specific tradition of black radical resistance. 
Both Hannah and Jessica came into this work as youth organizers, and so we asked them how their organizations actively built up the leadership of young people. Turns out the main advice they give is to listen and build close, authentic relationships. There's this model that we've been like trying to implement or like we implemented without even thinking that we were implementing it of uh, leadership development. It's like you see one or you kind of get involved with a workshop, let's say for this instance, and then you co-lead a workshop and then you're able to uh, lead a workshop yourself and support the leadership development of other folks. And then for the purpose of a workshop, right? It's, it's always really rewarding seeing somebody who you co-led one and like be able to branch off and be able to support other youth. Um, that has been a really big uh, model for us. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's, that's definitely an overlap. Like just creating an environment where young people who are getting more engaged in the work can take on more and more leadership roles um, in whatever capacity. So maybe, for instance, with our teen program um, or with the young people that we're organizing um, who are teenagers, uh, it's, we started out with like small cohorts of young people who are uh, getting trained um, in like organizing 101, Black Feminism 101, like what is abolition, what is the PIC, and then over time they started to de develop their own um, programming scopes and sequences. Um, they started wanting to lead workshops. Um, now, like things have evolved to the point where we have multiple cohorts and we have a leader circle, um, and they're really informing the shape and direction of, of what we're doing, what, what campaigns we're leading. Um, they're on the front lines, but not just as kind of like uh, tokens or as people who are just like the face, but actually um, taking direction and leadership from them. And I think the way that that's developed is a lot just by by listening. Um, the organizer is not supposed to be there like having like all the ideas and saying this is what we're doing, but more so trying to like facilitate other people coming out and like finding what their special way of contributing is going to look like. So I feel like it just looks different case to case. I think it looks like um, having like building close enough relationships with young people where you can like figure out like how to facilitate them coming into their own. What comes hand in hand with youth organizing is many isms, but most particularly ageism. We asked Hannah and Jessica if they wanted to share any experiences they've had with ageism and adultism in their organizations. I think uh, speaking for, on like with my like fundraising hat on, a lot of times I feel like funders want to hear like it's like they need evidence that you are effective and and as a youth-led organization mm. or as a youth organizing group they 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 feel, i feel like a lot of times that's represented as like put your young people on a stage for us and like perform how amazing your young people are and i feel like that's a form of ageism in the sense that it's like i don't know it just it just feels sometimes like a little bit disingenuous um just to like assume that like by picking a few like representatives to like speak on an issue that that's gonna represent what like your organization effectiveness is like yeah ageism is such a like controlled environment especially like it makes a big play especially like in the immigrant rights movement um particularly one because the idea of youth work has been so overpowered by like DACA, Dreamers, Dream Act, right? So how do you push and um, make a change or impact in trying to go beyond that and, like, say how uh, criminalizing that is for further for our communities? 
And so then that's, that's, I think, one of the ways, at least when I was younger or, like, coming into this work younger in my teens, seeing how, like, it was all respectability politics, especially being in, like, these founder meetings and being, I was like, what the fuck are these people talking about? I don't understand. But then having that, like, debrief at the end, I was like, oh, okay, okay, right? And I think that a lot of the times, yeah, like, they want to either see results, but they don't... Um, in, in terms of you were saying, Hannah, like funders want to see results, but funders aren't investing in our own leadership growth as young people. So then that's like the part where like, yeah, like you want us to have all of these built um, structures, but at the same time, like you're not implementing the work that it, or like investing in us to create those structures. But then you want us to have the same outcomes with these nonprofits that have like years of experience. They have people, millions and millions of dollars but at the same time right yeah yeah I think that's an excellent point too like the point about how like even the radical politics of younger organizers the fact that that will be totally disregarded until it becomes trendy like is mm. a total that is in another form of ageism it's like young people have been out here saying like fuck the police right but now that like there's more of this like acceptable way of talking about not even abolition but like prison reform it's like, oh, there's some credibility to what black young people have been saying literally forever. Um, so yeah, that's, that's definitely an aspect of ageism showing up there. One of the things that both Asada's Daughters and Immigrant Youth Coalition have in common is that abolition is a framework that is centered in their vision. We thought this conversation on youth-led strategies around dismantling ICE and dismantling police would be really important to listen to. I would say like abolition is, like you said, it's the vision that it frames our work and it's also a practice, right? There's, there's ways that specifically like what is abolition, right? It's this, the belief that we have to totally abolish all of the systems and structures that support, um, not just the, the ability for prisons and punishment to exist, but also specifically, um, the system of anti-blackness to exist, which was one of the foundations for, um, prisons and um, incarceration to incarceration to begin with. Um, so our work is framed around the idea that like black young people are going to be the specific rift that will shift that structure um, because black, black young people are specifically um, able to organize around this issue as people who are directly impacted by it um, in so many facets, not just materially, but also um culturally, emotionally, mentally. Um, so organizing young black people who face like the specific, like historical legacy of anti-blackness and uh, uh, prisons um, is really, really powerful because we can start to create a sense of like political consciousness in young people to like be aware of like, what is the history of, here's this condition that we are in, right? That, that, that you are in, that young black people are in, like, how can we start to put an analytical lens on, like, why do those conditions exist? What are the root causes of those things, right? And you peel back those layers, and, and the answer is, if we abolished these systems, we wouldn't face these conditions. So that's why our work is driven around that, because there's really, there's really no other way of trying to address the problems that we see in our communities without really getting at, like, the thing that makes it all possible, right? Um, yeah, thank you, Hannah, for that. I think that, like, similarly, um, like I said, immigrant work or, like, in a sphere of immigrant justice, um, 
the mainstream has continued to tell us that like citizenship is the answer, right? We need reform. We need immigration reform. And so then um, being younger or like being like, well, what does that mean to have immigration reform for this generation of people? Does that mean that like immigration is automatically solved? I think that that was a really big um, breakthrough for me to understand like, nah, like we need to tackle the root causes of immigration. Why are people migrating, right? And at the end of the day, it's all of these isms. And in order to like really be able to like get immigration, immigrant justice, and for like our people to continue to see like a better world, we need to like abolish the systems at play. But I think that abolition, um, larger in IYC, it looks a lot like um, re-seeing or re-envisioning where our work is currently aligned with. And I think that um, in the past few months, we have been looking at, like, is our work more aligned with, like, um, folks who center immigration, um, immigration or folks who center, and do we want to be the prison abolition lens to the immigration focus, or is it more around the prison abolition and folks who sent to prison abolition and we can be the immigration lens. And I think we're veering um, more towards the latter at this point because, like, yeah, people people got work to do. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of solidarity, like, across that, right? Like, the root reason that they're there are the same root reason or similar root reasons why anti-Blackness exists, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, being able to forge that solidarity around the concept of, like, fuck the reformist aspect of it like sure like we can have dreamers and have more programs to keep people here but like how can we question the whole concept how do we question the whole concept of the border itself how do we question the whole concept of citizenship itself and this whole like humanitarian lens that we talk a lot of we talk a lot about a lot of social issues through right like black people in the states and um immigrants basically, I think, are, are swept under the bus under both of those frameworks, right? And I think mm-hmm. abolition gives us, like, something to work together under to question the whole root reason why both those structures exist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I think that it's, like, even though it's, like, hella interconnected, right? Like, folks, like, especially for, like, Black immigrants, when you get citizenship, like, you're still going to be a target for the police. It's, like, it doesn't absolve anything, right? Like, we're still um, functioning under the system that, like, is perpetually like harming us and like it's all end goal is to like kill us right and so like at the end of the day like and I mean kill us as people of color but like at the end of the day like me getting citizenship isn't going to stop me from like still being a target for the police. Jessica and Hannah have been dropping all of the abolitionist brilliance on this podcast so we asked them how they could better support each other's work and then they went in landing us in the biggest abolitionist question of the day. Do we even share the same visions of liberation? I think that for me, or like in the immigrant scope, it's like just really like understanding the way that like different narratives painted by mainstream and being critical on like how that further um, pushes folks into the carceral system. And and then I'll I'll make this comparison because it like really is like something that really frustrates me. So a lot of folks in um and in Los Angeles, let me let me center this in Los Angeles, have been saying, um, stop the 3.5 billion um, jail expansion, uh, right? And so then that's been really big, and it's been like, yeah, fuck that shit, like, let's shut down prisons, but, like, right away, like, turn the other side, and they're like, yeah, um, let's support DACA, or, like, let's support, and they centralize, and, like, these these frameworks and these messagings of, like, model minority youth, right? And so, like, if you think about it, like, 
Um, who's DACA protecting? It's a protecting folks who are contributing to this country. You can't have any um, interactions with the law. You can't have um, any record. And you literally have to be like this model minority idea of like a young person who's going to be continuing to contribute to this society. And so then, right? And so then you think about like, yeah, we want to end the jails, but then who are you pushing into the same jail system by saying like defend DACA or only upholding DACA, right? And so then really like talking about how we need to continue to uplift narratives like of not one more deportation. Yeah, I totally agree with you about kind of breaking down what the, what under, what's underneath different messages, right? Um, I think that there's so many folks working across different ideological landscapes around these issues that I think it's really important to like figure out like do we have the same vision for liberation you know like so to your point um Jessica um about folks who were like yeah let's shut down these prisons but like let's still support DACA like are we really thinking about the world in the same ways do we do we want the same world because but like those two things don't make sense together right like if if you're against prisons and police and you understand why we're fighting for a world without them it doesn't make sense that we would support a vision for the world where only some people are denied are granted humanity in this in the mm. state um so i think like there's a lot of work that we can do around coming up with like creative ways to re totally reframe the the ways that there can be unity between these different across these issues um uh, around the specific manifestations that they that come up in different communities. But like more specifically, are we fighting, are, are we going to be able to like have a sustained relationship in solidarity with each other because we, we love each other and we actually want the same thing for our people? Yeah, and I think that um, going off of that, I think that a lot of the times, like right now we're having a conversation, but like I'm also thinking of all the other young folks in IYC or the other, all the other young folks and Asada's daughters, like, when do we have time to, like, strategically plan, like, are we going for the same vision? Or, like, is does our liberation look the same, right? For mm-hmm. real. Because if we're trying to do, like, no cops, no ice, no armies, like, we need to coordinate so hard, <laughs> so hard. Um, so I just feel like y'all are... <laughs> huh? It can't just be a Twitter chat. <laughs> Hey, there's there's a comms person here that's pro Twitter chats, but I I hear you. Also, yes and yes and yes and exactly. <laughs> there you go. Yes, um, yeah. I feel like y'all are holding so much abolitionist badassery down on your work, and I'm just curious. Like, do you talk about that in your grant applications or with funders? Hmm. I think that for IYC. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not the development person <laughs> entirely, but I think that um, even if we don't say abolitionist, our, a lot of our work says it, right? And we don't necessarily have to say this um, or like a word to say what we are. But I think that later on, when folks are do come to like do like site visits or anything, that's when we're like, nah, we're abolitionists. For Asadas, since I put my fundraiser hat on, um, <laughs> yeah, we we always talk about that shit, like. For us, we we don't really try to get into partnerships with funders because honestly, if you're taking a grant from a funder, you're, you're it's some kind of partnership. And I say that reluctantly because mm. you're not always going to have perfect funders. There's no such thing as that. Um, and yeah, that's that's why grassroots fundraising is so important to our work because if it's dependent on some nice rich people, like that's never you know what I mean. Like 
I mean, we can get into like what's the vision for funding the revolution, but um, the way that I've helped to shape the fundraising at Assad is I just, if I can't, if we can't put that forward, it's probably not going to work out. This podcast has so many different goals, but one in particular is hearing directly from organizers on their experiences with the philanthropy field so that we can fundamentally change it to better serve activism and organizing across the country. So we asked Hannah and Jessica, how can funders be better about respecting organizers' time and priorities? Yeah, I think, you know, this is a big question. So the philanthropy world, I think, has a lot of humbling to do, right? Like, if you think about what, like, how does the philanthropy exist? Our country doesn't is a, is a capitalist country. So all these rich people make excess money. And then the work that can be funded is just whether or not a rich person decides they care about an issue. Honestly, that's how it works. And then they set up um, organizations that are named after them. And they set up these staff, the staffs of people, to go out and create programs to give that money away out into those worlds. And I think what can happen is that those programs become like fiefdoms inside of these philanthropic organizations where the people who manage giving away all this money start to feel like they're the leader of the field. And I think that's a fundamental dynamic that is super problematic that results in a lot of the weird dynamics between organizers and funders because program officers, and I'm saying this as a former grant maker, Um, they get really excited about like their ideas um, and forget that the work is about the work is about supporting people who are actually out there with this with their skin in the game um, and not about like propping up yourself or like creating this like cool area of funding right Um, so something like really egregious that happened once was that we we didn't know that we owed this like super long report after we got this grant that was like through like multiple different organizations. Um, and we like found out like that we were late on this report that was like 40 pages. Um, and it just was really stressful. Cause like I said, we don't, we're, we were, we were staffed at that point, like a volunteer collective. So that meant that like a ton of us had to like put in a lot of extra time to like quickly get it done. And it was it actually, when we got into it, it wasn't even a report. It was almost like a research study on Asada's and like our work and all of these things that I I wish that it had been approached differently, right? Like Mm. ask for my consent to do research on us. Don't like frame it as a report, as a report. Um, Hannah mentioned this really good, like the communication aspect of it, of um, checking in with uh, youth organizations, right? Because again, there's like this big expectation that at the end of a funding cycle, you're supposed to submit the same level of report back that these other organizations with like years of experience, five staff per, right, um, are supposed to submit back. And I think that the communication piece hasn't something that's been like um, lacking really significantly, especially when it's like, oh, hey, here's the money. And then you don't hear from funders again. Like, nah, like, check in with me. Like, this is a partnership, you know? Like, yeah, you're giving us money, but at the end of the day, like, I need, like, like, oh, hey, are you doing well? Like, is there any resources that we can provide, right? We really heard what Jessica and Hannah were saying about the fundamental problematic dynamics that can occur between funders and grassroots organizers. And we really hope folks in the philanthropy field that are listening will really sit with these messages. As two amazing youth-led abolitionist organizations fighting for gender, racial, and immigrant justice, we wanted to hear from Hannah and Jessica on not only the struggles of youth organizing, but the magic of it too. I think 
the struggle of youth organizing is that if if you're doing it with heart, you're you're the basis of it is building relationships. Oh. And so, I mean, actually, that's the struggle and the magic because the closer you get to someone and the closer you get to people, the more you love them and the more it hurts, like when they go through pain and when they struggle. And being in that collective struggle is is both beautiful and also a struggle. So <laughs> I, yeah, I would just say like that's that's it. Just the the the, the, the messiness of relationships and the, the beauty of those relationships and how transformative they are. Dang, that was beautiful. I think, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that part of it is also, um, as, y- as young people, the expectations of, like, having to have your life together, having to, like, keep everything in, right, is a struggle. But then, at the same time, yeah, those relationships build and just seeing young people flourish and, like, change and like have these dope ass analysis and i'm just like hell yeah like you didn't even like you had that in you all along right and like you just needed some uh, extra access to these spaces like seeing young people flourish is like the most beautiful thing and speaking of flourishing if you could imagine a time where your work is completely 100 percent funded in a future that is abundant what would your work look like what would be possible let me tell you, first of all, everybody would be getting stipends. Everybody would be like, <laughs> like, hell yeah, that's labor. Second of all, we would have health care. Like, up to this point, not, none of us are able to, like, afford health care. Um, first of all, we don't have access to anything as, like, folks um, who don't have papers. But second of all, like, we don't have money for health care, like, um, mental health treatment. Um, just, like, if we were to get injured or anything, like, we don't have access to that. You already knew. You were there was like not a single. Let me tell you. If listening to this wants to drop some coin for a healthcare, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> Word. Um, yo, we can talk offline about that. I feel I can I mean Asada's just recently set some stuff up. Um and your situation is probably different, but let's talk. Mm. Let's talk. Yes. Um This is the magic. Um, yeah, if our work was completely funded, like, I was thinking about this question in two ways. I know it used to be short, but, like, <laughs> I was thinking about the version where, like, we're, like, the world is abundant, so, like, everything's been abolished, like, we're in this, like, post-whatever future, everything's beautiful, but, like, okay, if our work was funded completely, um, we would have, like, four different sites, like, in Chicago. Like, we have this, like, group, like, space in, um, in Washington Park on the south side, but, like, it would be really dope if we could, like, actually start ridding ourselves in more communities, like, on the west side and a little bit farther south, like, closer to Indiana, um, because that's where, like, there's so much push-out happening, like, with schools closing and, like, black people just, like, not being able to, like, live in Chicago anymore. There's so much need to start uh, building with folks that are, that are, you know, other places around the city. So I think that would be a huge priority for us and just, like, way more... Um, like youth resource folks to work with us. Like right now we have like a full-time organizer and a full-time ED. And then we have a lot of volunteers, but we need like somebody who can like daily be there and just like connect young people to resources. Like it's so critical. Yeah, for real. And I feel like as organizers, we're like always working on this scarcity model, you know, where like, we're like having the space to talk about what 
our work would look like if we were funded. I mean, we need more space like this. And I really appreciate y'all getting into it. And I hear that, I hope that funders and philanthropists are listening and they pay up because it's time <laughs> for us to be able to organize under, under abundant funding circumstances. Speaking of abundant resources, we'll return to this conversation after a short public service announcement from our program staff who make our grants. Hey Joy, what's the Mobilized Power Fund? That's a great question, Mai. The Mobilized Power Fund is a monthly rapid response fund for direct action, community mobilizing, and healing justice. We launched this fund in 2015 so that powerful movements can respond to and heal from immediate threats and opportunities with flexible and responsive funding opportunities. Whoa, that's so cool. Who can apply? The Mobilize Power Fund supports groups led by and for young women of color and queer and trans young people of color organizing in their communities around gender justice. Groups don't even need a 501c3 status or fiscal sponsor and can even apply over the phone or using a selfie video. That sounds amazing. How do folks get more info? That's easy. Just visit our website at thirdwavefund.org and find more information under grants by clicking the Mobilize Power Fund tab. You can also reach out to us at programs at thirdwavefund.org. I love being able to learn more about y'all's work and I'm I'm just like fanboy over here with <laughs> like all the things that you both were saying um, today. I feel like the thing that really hit me was um, kind of, you know, as an organizer, I feel like I also get stuck in silos or like what you were saying earlier and kind of like focusing on the needs of of my communities or like, you know, ending war. and. And I'm curious, like when, and I always think, oh, when will that moment be that we actually come together across our communities and across our like short-term campaigns and say that question you asked, which is like, are our visions for liberation like lining up with each other? And um, and and we have to make that happen. Mm -hmm. Like, and so I just love that y'all brought that and you brought kind of like ways that you can stand with each other in solidarity more or ways that the work is intersecting. And I'm just like craving more of that in my life. Mm -hmm. So thank you very mm -hmm. much for bringing that. Word. Jessica, I just actually really appreciated, first of all, like I was so happy that we met because you just said some, you brought so much to the space when I met you at the third wave convening. Um, and also I wanted to say that like, I just appreciated you for like being on this call right now. Like you just got back from a 24 hour trip to like go and like do core to core for your people. So like, I was very moved by that. Like I just, that just shows like how dedicated and how much love you have for your people. And I feel like that's the most important thing. Monica and Tara. Yeah. Thank you both for like, um, taking initiative and doing this, you know, like, uh, I like strongly believe in like organizers and like philanthropic roles and communications roles. And like a lot of these other roles that like, aren't necessarily built or meant for folks with organizing experience, but rather with like, um, institutional experience right so like i had to see the organizers and y'all and like thank y'all for being present and for bringing all your brilliance to the space this morning yes i am so moved by y'all doing this it's so brilliant and smart thank you for organizing this Aww, yeah. thank you
Yeah. Back end people to the front. Hell yeah. <laughs> I see ya. <laughs>Hey, Nicole, can you tell me about donor organizing? It's not going to shock anyone that philanthropy has been a home for the most wealthy and privileged, but Third Wave is a home in philanthropy for people of color, women, queer, and low-income folks who are consistently the first to throw down for social justice movements. You're so right. From house parties to selling art, our communities have used their talent and magic to support Third Wave Fund and our brilliant grantees. Yes, exactly! Folks can head to our website at thirdwavefund.org and become a monthly sustainer today. Um, okay, so to on the note of like hearing more, um, if you can just maybe end with like what what is like one ask from your organization right now or like what it, what is something that y'all are working on right now that um, folks that are listening um, could support y'all in doing? So one of the things that we're getting ready to uh, launch right now is a bail, uh, a bail fund. And so it's going to have three components, uh, one to post bail, one to support folks um, who need money for commissary, which um, we don't see a lot of commissary funds, so we definitely want to do that. And then the third component is going to be a post-detention fund. And so if you're listening, um, stay tuned through the IYC.org. We're going to be uh, launching our bail fund, and then feel free to donate. And then um, that is always super appreciated. Bird, I'm about to get my coins ready. Um, <laughs> uh, as I mentioned before, Estadas, we just opened a space. We want to open so many more. Right now, we're like on our way to having most of the funding we put out there, uh, but we're still we still need half of it left. So if you go to donorbox.org/ad-space, you can put some coins toward us getting more couches and books and furniture and keeping the heat on. Uh, that would be much appreciated. Thanks, y'all. All right, all right. The coins are flowing. <laughs> <laughs> I hear them already. Um, all right, y'all. Thank you so much for being with us today, and um, we'll be following up with you. All right, thank Hope you. Hope y'all have good sleep and good family times, and appreciate you making the time to talk today. Yes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Third Way Fund is a feminist activist fund led by and for young women of color, intersex, queer, and trans folks of color, and low-income youth under 35 years old. We work toward a vision of philanthropic justice in which those who have the least economic and political power have the most access to philanthropy. Third Wave strives to ensure that funding is accessible to new and emerging work at the intersections of gender, racial, and economic justice. We provide community-led organizations with rapid response and multi-year grants, as well as training and relationship building opportunities. We work to eliminate barriers to philanthropy in order to redistribute power, allow transformative justice approaches to take root, and support healing from oppression. Thanks so much to Anna Connor, DJ Tika Masala, Jale Akavan, and Sarah Liu for helping us bring this podcast to fruition. Yes, and also thanks to Debbie Southorn, Rai Young, Nicole Miles, Joy Messenger, Mai Doan, and many more for making this podcast happen. Stay tuned for our next episode in June. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. And be sure to follow Third Wave Fund on Twitter at the number three, followed by Wave, on Instagram at Three Wave Fund, and on Facebook. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter on our website at thirdwavefund.org.